Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome back to What Went Wrong, your favorite podcast full stop that just so happens to be about movies and how it's nearly impossible to make them, especially a good one. As always, we're your hosts, Chris Winterbauer and Lizzie Bassett, and I'm thrilled because we're not covering The Lord of the Rings anymore. No, we're not. I'm so excited to just sit back and enjoy the inconceivable backstory of The Princess Bride, and it's pretty charming. I think you're going to have a good time. I'm excited. Also, we want to call out before we get into this that we have gotten some great reviews. In particular, we got another one recently calling out that they would love to see us doing some more episodes featuring directors, writers, creators who are women and people of color. We hear you. Yes, we absolutely need to cover more of those on this show. We promise those episodes are coming. Unfortunately, because the film industry has frequently been dominated by white men, that has been the majority of uh, the directors and writers that we have talked about. But we need to make more of an effort, and we shall. Exactly. We also got a very long, thoughtful review from someone who has, they said, a love-hate relationship with our show. And all I wanted to say to this individual was, thank you for taking the time to write to us. Uh, while I don't agree with everything that you said, I actually, it was very thought-provoking, and I really appreciated it. It was and a wild ride. It was. And uh, of course, we always want you to listen. You're always invited. Everybody is invited to listen to our show. We hope we can create a show that appeals to folks of all backgrounds, uh, with the exception of those who leave us three-star reviews for uh, airing reruns. But otherwise, <laughs> yeah. everyone's invited. Just wanted to hammer that nail home. Uh, anyway, let's get to today's episode, Lizzie. Let's do it. All right, well, without further ado, Chris, I'm going to tell you the inconceivable tale of how the Princess Bride made it to the screen. So, Right off the bat, let's just get the information out of the way. The Princess Bride was released wide on October 9th, 1987, directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, both the book and the screenplay, Yep. starring Carrie Elwes, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, Billy Crystal, Carol Kane, Wallace Shawn, and my favorite person in this whole story, 
Andre Rene Husimov, aka Andre the Giant. Yep. You are gonna fall in love with him. Yep. I love him so much. And as always, the synopsis from IMDb is a bedridden boy's grandfather reads him the story of a farm boy turned pirate who encounters numerous obstacles, enemies, and allies in his quest to be reunited with his true love. Now, Chris, today we are going to discover how this I think truly incredible movie took over 14 years to make it to the screen. Wow. Why it was not a box office success and how a giant fart can teach you the most important lesson in human empathy. <laughs> All things I feel like I need this week in particular. Yeah. So I'm thrilled. I really loved this movie growing up. It was a treat to rewatch it. It is one of those movies that I find only grows more charming with age. So it leans so far into the bespoke kind of almost homespun qualities of it. It feels like it's being told, obviously, from a grandfather to his grandchild that mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I just I, it's it's a it's one that we've gone back to. Sometimes you go back and you have that. Was it great? Or what were you eight? You know, reaction. This one really held up for me, I have to say. I think we're going to learn why that is over the course of this episode, a lot of it has to do with the fact that this is not a children's movie. No. At all. It's it's a movie for adults that children also happen to be entertained by, which is yeah. one of the best, uh, best case scenarios. I'm sure you as a parent can agree with that. <laughs> I can. I'm trying to keep my daughter away from Coco Melon for as long as possible, for the love of God. I don't know what that is, and I don't want to. So my main sources for the episode today are... Which Lie Did I Tell? More Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, which he does talk about The Princess Bride in. And As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride by Carrie Elwes and ghostwriter Joe Layden. Both are absolutely delightful. If you enjoy this episode, I highly recommend you go back and pick them up. It's just seriously fun. I really enjoyed both of these. Um, so I want to start, Chris, not with The Princess Bride or with William Goldman, but with... Rob Reiner. Let's do it. Reiner was born to Hollywood comedy royalty, Carl and Estelle Reiner, and he'd broken out as an actor early on playing Meathead in All in the Family from 1971 to 1978. He is very funny. Mm -hmm. Really an incredible actor. He's like, he's so good, continues to be. One of my favorite Rob Reiner ongoing cameos is as Jess's dad on New Girl, which he is yes. wonderful. <laughs> yes. Um, so after directing a couple of TV movies, Reiner then broke out in a huge way as a director with 1984's This Is Spinal Tap, which right. if you've never seen, stop what you're doing, go watch it. Yeah, <laughs> it is, turn it to 11 yes. and watch it. It is incredible. Um, and he, of course, also plays uh, faux documentarian Marty DeBerge in that film as well. So he follows that up with The Sure Thing, starring John Cusack in 1985, yeah. which I have never seen. Is it cute? Yeah, it is. It's a cute movie. And John Cusack is, I feel, always very always charming Always so cute. I love John Cusack. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Okay. And then in 1986, he releases Stand By Me. So yeah. that's a pretty crazy three-movie run yeah. in very quick succession. Columbia Pictures, who was releasing Stand By Me, was desperate to keep working with Rob Reiner. So the way that Carrie Elwes tells this is that they said, basically, you've got carte blanche. Mm -hmm. You can do anything you want. And Rob Reiner remembered the fantastic book his father had given him many years earlier. And so when they said, 
What do you want, Rob? Anything. He said, the princess bride. And they immediately said, anything but that. Yeah, anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk about why. I'll do anything for Rob, but <laughs> I, I won't do, do the that. princess bride. <laughs> Maybe that's what Meatloaf was singing about. So let's talk about the princess bride and why they were refusing to do it. It had a reputation at this point as being absolutely impossible to make into a film. Right which I'm sure you've probably heard about this part of the story before. I have not. Well, never mind. So the novel was written by William Goldman in 1973. The way that it came about was that he was on a trip with his daughters and he offered to write them a story. And apparently this was something that he would do pretty frequently. He would like tell them bedtime stories. um, And he said that this was one of the only things in his sort of writing career where the stories came to him very naturally, which I think is is very sweet. Um, And he asked them what this story should be about. One said princesses, the other said brides. He said, okie dokie, that's the title. (laughs) Brilliant. It's incredible. There was a movie from a few years ago called Monster Trucks about trucks that are also alien monsters. No one saw it. Don't worry about it. That movie came about because an executive six-year-old son was like, you know what I'd like to see in a movie? Trucks that are also monsters. And it got (laughs) fast-tracked. No joke. So anyway, this was the good example. Monster (laughs) Trucks is the bad example. Well, we don't know that. I have not seen Monster Trucks yet. So it just so happens, Chris, that out of everything that legendary screenwriter and author William Goldman had written, which, in case you're not familiar, includes Marathon Man, Heat, Mm -hmm. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the president's men. Uh, His credits are absolutely insane. Out of all of those credits, The Princess Bride was his favorite thing he ever wrote. Wow. And at first it came very easily to him. uh, But then he ended up kind of struggling with the story for years. Then he gets the idea that his novel could just be the good parts meaning that he could think think of it as though he were abridging someone else's Uh, Mm -hmm. story, and just selecting the good parts, which is how you get the title that the book has, which is The Princess Bride, S. Morgan Stern's classic tale of true love and high adventure, the good parts version. So you'll hear that in the movie, Peter Falk says, by S. Morgan Stern. Of course, that's, it is not. It's, um, Mm -hmm. It's William Goldman. Now, the idea is that in the book, William Goldman's father used to tell him this story, but only the best parts. And so now William Goldman is recounting the good parts to you in the abridged version, which is, of course, where you get the Peter Falk and Fred Savage characters from the movie. And he's just skipping through to the good parts. But in the book, it's his father? I believe so. That's interesting. I don't know if you're talking about this. I believe William Goldman's father committed suicide when he was in high school. Oh, God. Yeah, so that is really interesting if that's uh, if he wrote it as a father to his son. I did not know that. I will have to investigate that. God, that's that's sad. Uh, a little fun fact after that not so fun fact is that the pit of despair was originally the zoo of death in the book changed oh, for budgetary reasons. So Goldman writes the book, publishes it, it does well. His agent loves it and his agent gets it into the hands of the green light guy at 20th Century Fox. Now I want to read you what Goldman has to say about the green light guy. These premier 100 types out there have all these different titles, vice president in charge of this, executive in charge of that, and on and on. All salad. In movies, there is but one power, that of being able to green light a picture. Each studio has a grand total of one green lighter. Those other executives at that studio, regardless of their title, are only oil slicks. I, uh, 
I only experienced this, I've experienced this only once in my career, but when we made Moonshot, a lot of people read that script, had to read that script. Ultimately, it only mattered what one person mm-hmm. thought. And that was Toby Emmerich in that instance. But uh, anywho, so yeah, there's always that, you know, that one person. There's at the, the green end light of the guy. Day, yeah, everybody else is reading it to make, sh- to try to help tee it up in the right way right. to the green light person. But ultimately it's, and I think that's kind of how it has to be. It's got to come down to one person. Of course, you can't have yeah. every decision happen by committee. So the green light guy at Fox loves the book, but he's not totally sure it really makes sense as a movie. So they make hmm. a kind of weird deal with William Goldman. They will buy the film rights to the book if he writes the screenplay, but they won't buy the screenplay unless they decide they want to make it into a movie. And by the way, Goldman would go on to write the screenplays for several of his other novels, including Marathon Man, Magic, and Heat. However, all of those are published after The Princess Bride. So he didn't actually have a track record of doing that prior to this, I don't think. So Goldman writes it. Greenlight Guy still isn't 100% all in, so he sends Goldman to meet with Richard Lester in London. Richard Lester had directed Help and A Hard Day's Night, the Beatles movies. Which had almost led to the Beatles doing Lord of the Rings, as we discussed on our last couple episodes. There's actually several Lord of the Rings tie-ins in this episode. Oh, interesting. You'll never escape it. He had also just directed The Three Musketeers, so that means that this would be right around 1973-ish, which is right after The Princess Bride came out. So Lester had some notes. Goldman applies them. Greenlight guy likes it. Bada boom, bada bing. We got a movie, right, Chris? William, go Billy Goldman and Dick Lester are making a movie. <laughs> no, they're not because the Greenlight guy gets shit canned. <laughs> oh, no. That's the problem. Somebody can always fire the Greenlight guy. That's right. So new Greenlight guy basically just takes a hook across his desk and says, you know, nothing. Well, that's the thing. When the new green light guy comes in, the first thing he does is kills everything everything the old guy did. Everything. Because God forbid any of those become successes. Exactly. They don't want them to become a success because then they wouldn't get the credit. It would be the credit of the previous guy. So the princess bride is dead. Uh, But Fox still holds the rights. So William Goldman, at this point, he's like, I have to make money somehow. So he just kind of like lets it go. And he spends years writing many other hit screenplays. In the back of his mind, though, is always The Princess Bride. And he has this nagging fear that, you know what? Fox could just commission another screenplay from someone else who would just ruin it. So he does something pretty unusual. He buys back the rights to his own book with his own money and says... That is very unusual. "Mm -hmm." He said, quote, I was the only idiot who could destroy it now. (laughs) Yeah. How much do you know how much the rights were? I don't. I don't think it was crazy expensive. First of all, because this wasn't like a blockbuster book. And second of all, because there was always suspicion as to whether or not this would be feasible to make into a movie. Got it. I think the big reason for that is that tonally it is a strange book. Yeah. In the way that the movie is as well. So don't worry though, Chris. I'm not worried. Then another green light guy from another studio, and he doesn't name this studio, also strikes a handshake deal with Goldman. This time they're going to make it, Chris. This is going to be the one. And we're going to put it all on a handshake, the classic <laughs> so, Hollywood so the, Hollywood handshake. So they do a classic Hollywood handshake, and they go their separate ways, uh, you know, to celebrate that weekend and 
Get ready to get going the next Monday. There's just one problem. That green light guy gets hit by a plane. <laughs> <laughs> that green light guy also gets shit canned that weekend. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this just keeps getting better. Goldman then manages to get a small unnamed studio on board and they are so excited. So yeah. excited, in fact, that they actually go under the weekend before. Yeah, exactly. um, pre-production is supposed to start yeah. on The Princess Bride. So, Oh, we got too excited. We spent too much. We're out yeah, of business. Yeah, we're completely out of business. So oh, no. at this point, the script is cursed and it is officially languishing in development hell. Yeah. Um, some other directors who had also tried to get this movie made over the years include Norman Jewison, who, oh, wow. of course, did um, Fiddler on the Roof. Mm -hmm. He, I believe, tried to make this into an independent film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as Fezzik. Oh, wow. He did, yeah, he did Moonstruck. I was thinking of uh, In the Heat of the Night, Cincinnati Kid, mm. um, uh, The Hurricane, uh, was one of his last movies. Oh, wow. So, yes. He's great. Uh, incredible director. Uh, Robert Redford also tried to... That would have been weird. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't have been very funny, I don't think. <laughs> no. Um, no, a, a heavier film. Yeah. Also, what went wrong alum, John Borman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. John, he probably put a lot of sex in it. Had Let's to. Let's just be honest. Had That's to. what he did. Uh, yeah. And François Truffaut. All really? Tried, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Didn't tried, see that one coming. Tried to make this movie. Didn't happen. I also saw somewhere that even Carl Reiner maybe tried to make this at some point. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I, he did give Rob Reiner the book. Yeah. My guess is somebody read that he gave him the book and knew Goldman, like, you know what I mean? Like, put the two together, but... Maybe. Who knows? So, at this point... The, William Goldman has gotten burned so many times with this, yeah. his favorite thing he has ever written, that he did not want to give Rob Reiner the rights when mm. Reiner approached him um, about this this movie. He said, this is my favorite thing I've ever written. I want it on my tombstone. Well, it keeps killing people, so it probably will go <laughs> on his tombstone. That's true. Um, <laughs> side note, I tried to find his tombstone. He did pass away in 2018 to confirm if anyone oh. honored his wish, but I couldn't find it, so I don't know. I hope somebody did. Oh, that would be a fact. Listeners, if any of you know where William Goldman is buried, we would like to go pay our respects. Send us a message. That's true. But God bless Rob Reiner and his producing partner, Andy Scheinman. They went to Goldman's apartment, and they pitched their vision for it. And William Goldman sounds like such a tough nut to crack, but so funny. They mm -hmm. were like going through this whole pitch and they're both freaking out. They're like, I have mm -hmm. no idea how this is going. Like he's not giving them any clues. He's just like, you know, writing in his journal mm -hmm. as they're like pitching this thing. And then they stop and he, Goldman is like ecstatic. He loved mm -hmm. it. It's the best pitch he's heard. So he says yes. But again, Great. nobody at this point wants to finance this thing. Yeah. Like, nobody wants to touch this. So Reiner turns to his old friend, mentor, and massive sitcom genius, Norman Lear. Yeah. Lear said yes after reading the script on the condition that they find distribution through a major studio so that his then brand new Act 3 productions would not be on the hook for the whole thing financially. Because right. it would literally bankrupt them. Right. So Reiner and Scheinman somehow get... 20th Century Fox to come back around again on board and suddenly 14 long years after it was published with a budget of around 16 million dollars The Princess Bride was headed to the big screen. Wow. So, 
The first people hired were Rob's close friends, Billy Crystal, for his cameo as Miracle Max. And of course, <laughs> his is incredible. <laughs> so good. Billy Crystal. So I forget good. how good Pete Billy Crystal. He's so funny. Oh, incredible. Uh, so good. Apparently his outtakes are just like unbelievable uh, from this. I bet you they're absurd. I mean, steals the movie. He's in the movie for what, five minutes or five less? Five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and Carol Kane are like one of the most memorable parts of the whole thing. They're great. Um, yeah. And of course, also Rob's Spinal Tap collaborator, Christopher Guest as Count right. Rugen, the Six-Fingered Man. Who would, of course, become the chief proponent of mockumentary yes. film. Yes. And uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's husband. Indeed. And I've heard wonderful, nice, quiet man. He's supposed to be so nice. Uh, in Carrie yeah. Elwes's book, which we'll get to in a little bit, they had a funny interaction. But yeah, Christopher Guest <laughs> is like the polar opposite of Count Rugen, the six-finger yeah, man. Exactly. Like, he's just like the sweetest <laughs> man on the planet. Yeah. And only five fingers, I've heard. He is, so. Yeah, has a solid 10 yeah. fingers total. So um, 10 fingers total. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so many of the people involved in the film jumped at the chance because they were already big fans of the book, including Carrie Elwes, who had read it, and Chris Sarandon, who, Who's great in this? He is and so funny. He's also great in Fright Night, and I think people we forget like how good he was in some of these more outlandish roles in in the eighties. And it's I love he him. really he straddles like camp very 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 yes. well, and I really I really enjoyed seeing him again. He's yeah. very fun, and you can see how Shrek steals so much for this movie yes. from this movie, like Lord Farquaad as well. Oh, is totally, like, just designed to look like the short stubby. I feel like. Chris Sarandon, anyway. Scabby. So he had actually been married to Susan Sarandon. Many people mm -hmm. don't know that. That is her first husband, Chris Sarandon, uh, while she was doing a film with Robert Redford. And Redford at that point had the film rights. And so he gave Susan a copy and then she gave it to Chris. And that's how he had it. And he loved it. So when he heard that they were trying to cast Humperdinck, he was like, get me in the room. Get me in the room. Yeah. Great. Now... Princess Buttercup, on the other hand, had proven a very difficult role to cast. Hmm. Which kind of makes sense. Like, they talked about this a bit. She's the straight man, essentially. Yeah. And that's often the hardest part to play. Yeah, you need somebody who is not going to drag down the pacing or dampen the comedy, mm -hmm. but provides the contrast that lets you laugh. Like, who can, like you said, play it straight, play it serious. It is tough to find that. Jim at the office. Exactly. And also to be just like absolutely stunning. She's supposed to be one yes. of the most beautiful or the most beautiful woman, woman in the world. Right. So they saw hundreds of women for this part, but nobody was quite right. I saw in a couple of places that Meg Ryan, Uma Thurman. That both would make sense. And Courtney Cox had all auditioned for the part. Courtney Cox. Interesting. This is a little bit before I would have known of of her, yes, because I, I learned about her through friends. The name I was going to mention, because we've talked about her on this, is Leah Thompson, mm. who I thought just because like Back to the Future was right around here, and yes. I just thought she, there's she does not she's not quite the look I think that they're going for, but she she committed so hard in Howard the Duck, I was like she can oh, do anything. She's amazing. Weirdly though, yeah. my initial reaction was that even though I know all of the names I just listed are American, she, for some reason, strikes me as too American. Um, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I can't explain. Fair Immediately, enough. I was like, ah, oh, Leah Thompson, American. <laughs> Meg Ryan seems so American to me, too, in a good way. But, I feel like, like she, she, seems... could, she could pass for, like, you know, bubbly countryside uh, uh, 
Brit lady. <laughs> bubbly country Brit bumpkin? Yes. What are we going to go <laughs> for? Hot, yeah. hot bubbly bumpkin. Um, so <laughs> apparently it. Robin Wright's name had been floating around, but she was essentially unknown at this point. She was right. on an American soap opera called Santa Barbara. But didn't Never heard have, of it. yeah, it was not huge. Really big in the Santa Barbara area. <laughs> really, but... really big in the central coast of central California. Coast. Huge numbers. <laughs> but she didn't have many other credits to her name. And also, she is American. And I think that Americans, despite the fact that I listed out all Americans, yeah. were not what was coming to top of mind for them right. to cast this role. They were concerned mm. about the accent. So finally, they're so exhausted of looking that they they see Robin's picture. It's been hanging up there. And they're just like, whatever. <laughs> Bring her in. There's the story you want to hear as an actor. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> no. So they, they bring her in. And Chris, unlike Jake Gyllenhaal in The Lord of the Rings, she knew about the British accent. And Got not it. only that, her stepfather was British. Uh, so she came in and she pulls it off without a hitch. They were extremely blown away by her, very impressed. Um, they all said that, like, it was no question. As soon as they saw her, they were like, make her a deal. That is that is right. Buttercup. The, she says, she's like, I think they were so tired. They literally yeah. saw 500 women. And I walked in and they were like, sure, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Great. Got the deal. We're done. But she is great in this. She's great. I'm inclined to believe them. I bet she had a great audition. I also think Carrie Fisher would have been really good. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She's she's almost too funny, though. I know. I know we know that now, but like she played it straight in Star Wars. So she's anyway. a little funny in Star Wars. She is. Robin Wright, not known for being like not known super for being super funny. <laughs> Robin Wright of House of Cards. The villain in Forrest Gump. She is the villain in Forrest Gump. I know. Let's be I know. I just kind of like, oh, she died. It's sad. It's Continue. sad. But she also, I feel, made yeah. some terrible decisions. Um, so she was also foreign to, forced to sign on for another year of Santa Barbara just to be able to do this because the soap opera, that's how they roll. Now, the role of Wesley was proving similarly difficult to cast. Hmm. But Rob Reiner gets a hold of a Trevor Nunn film called Lady Jane. Have you ever seen this, Chris? No, I've never seen it. I actually love this movie. Um, it is not a funny movie at all. It's a very sad movie about Lady Jane Grey, who was yeah. the queen for nine days before she got her head lopped off. And in it, opposite Helena Bonham Carter is mm. Carrie Elwes. He is so good in it. He is like a huge bag of dicks for like 90% of the movie. <laughs> and then, Great. and he's so good at it. He is such an asshole. And then it, he comes around at the end in a way that That's is great. so charming and I think very hard to pull off. Um, and he ends up, you know, standing by his wife's side um, in a very sort of tragic, sweet and very romantic way at the end. Hmm. So it came out in 1986. I'm not sure if Reiner got an early screening. He probably must have. But he is very struck by Carrie Elwes's performance. I can see why, having seen this movie, I can see why he thought he would work based He's on that. Dashing. Yeah. Very handsome. Very, you know, sort of Errol Flynn-esque. Mm-hmm. But I think the part of the part of that movie that did it is that he is an asshole. <laughs> Like, yeah. And still manages to be appealing even through that um, in that movie. Well, and he has to, co- he has to, you know, obviously pull off the Dread Pirate Roberts exactly. side of the persona in this movie. And I think it's fun that his character is, his character is very multidimensional in a very fun way in this movie. He's great. The director Trevor Nunn actually offered Carrie the chance to spend a year in residency with the Royal Shakespeare Company after wow. working with him. But Carrie turned it down. Had he said yes, he would not have been available for what came next. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So Carrie, at this point, is filming an indie film in Berlin when he gets a call from his agent that Rob Reiner and his producing partner want to meet with him. And apparently they're on a pretty tight timeline, but they're still looking for their Wesley. And he's like, Wesley in The Princess Bride? I fucking love that book. And they want to come meet me? Fantastic. Now, Chris, this is early summer 1986. Something big had just happened only about 800 miles away in what is now Ukraine. Oh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Chernobyl. So Carrie and his indie film crew don't seem too bothered by this. Uh, For anyone that doesn't know, Chernobyl was a massive nuclear meltdown uh, that did cause like nuclear fallout over a huge swath of Europe. And people were very afraid. They didn't know how much area was going to be, you know, affected. Um, Apparently, a week earlier when this film crew was filming in Helsinki, they were warned that they probably shouldn't drink the milk, just in case. Um, (laughs) Which, it goes to be like, I wonder what's going on with the cows? Yeah, (laughs) why is it just the cows? But they they seem pretty lax about this. Carrie Elwes was like, I don't know, I wasn't really that worried. However, Hindi Scheinman, Rob Reiner's producing partner, was very scared. Yeah. So when uh, he's not excited about entering a possible nuclear fallout zone and Rob Reiner is like, whatever, don't go if you don't want to go. But at this point, they had, uh, just like with Buttercup, auditioned hundreds of people for this part, yeah, including Colin Firth. Oh, you know, Carrie Elwes, I think, cuts a more dashing figure. However... Colin Firth in that movie, The Kingsman, which yeah. is like kind of a nuts movie, but I kind of liked it. It's fun. It's very fun. He does action real well in that movie. He's great. So who knows? He could have been wonderful. I agree. I don't think that's a bad option. But apparently poor Andy was so scared that he would literally run from the car into the hotel uh, and the same going out because he didn't want to be outside. Just, just Holding a ball of lead over his <laughs> yes. crotch as he's like sprints between the location. Uh, he apparently left behind a thousand dollar jacket because he just wanted to get the fuck out of oh, there. Wow. He, oh, wow. he was like, We're going in to talk to this man and then we are leaving Berlin. <laughs> they walk in and Carrie's got a sixth finger all of a sudden. Like, gotta get <laughs> ah. out of here. Well, he could have played the six finger man. So Elvis was dreading having to actually read for the part. Um, and he spent much of his hotel room meeting with Rob and Andy doing a Fat Albert impression. <laughs> so he turned into Michael Scott. <laughs> <laughs> fat Albert. <laughs> 
Wow. Oh my God. I love how he thought like, if I can do this long enough, I won't have to audition. Literally. Like that's, it's like, like a kid trying to avoid, like get out, get out of church. Like if I just lie still in my bed long enough, we will miss church. Yeah. That is what he tried to do. So I don't know how long his fat Albert impression went on. But it went on for a long time. I can't hear it. Um, Nope. Let's not. uh, The good news is, they loved it. <laughs> hey, honestly, if I was, if I had seen, from what I know of Lady Jane, Lady Jane, which is a not drama, funny, yeah, not funny, and he's very. I know he's dashing. I know he's handsome. I know he can do the probably the physical stuff. The last thing would be like, can he do the humor? That's and then right. This guy's just like, you guys know Fat Albert. <laughs> that would probably be a good sign. Came right out with Fat Albert. So yeah. he does end up reading a small part of the scene from the Fire Swamp where Wesley explains how he became the Dread Pirate The Dread Pirate Roberts, right. And at that point, they were like, stop, you've got the part. Also, they want to get the fuck out of there. Yeah, they're also like, <laughs> <laughs> they're like leaving the hotel room. It's yours, it's yours. <laughs> it's yours, goodbye. Um, good luck with the radiation. So then they jetted off to go talk to a giant. Yes. André René Rusimov was born in France in 1946, about 40 miles outside of Paris in the countryside. He was somewhere around seven feet, four inches tall. That changes depending on what source you are looking at. And uh, I saw in many places that he weighed over 500 pounds. Although again, that also changes. Do you know how big he was when he was born? You know what? He wasn't huge. So he had a kind of... um, gigantism i think is the correct term that affects your like adrenal glands like agromegaly yes yes so it doesn't start kicking into full effect until you hit puberty essentially the pituitary gland right like kicks it in yeah my grandpa was just under 12 pounds when he was born you know david was over 12 pounds yeah that's right i saw a pic i saw a video of david as a baby and honestly it was one of the scariest things i've ever seen enormous it felt like somebody had CGI'd a 150% too big baby into somebody's home video footage. He was so big. Honestly, David might have been bigger than Andre the Giant at birth. Why are you so big? And now he's a very lovely, proportionate six foot two man. Yeah. So, a lovely, a lovely tall man. Yeah. So, a little fun fact about Andre is that he was frequently driven to school when he was young by a very famous playwright who happened to live in the French countryside, and that is Samuel Beckett. That, I knew I didn't remember the name, but I, when you mentioned that, I had heard that story before. Yeah. Well, yeah. so this is interesting. You may have heard the story that Samuel Beckett drove Andre to school because Andre was too big to fit in the school bus. That's the story I heard. And that's maybe the that's story. Bullshit. Well, so this is kind of a lot of things about Andre the Giant are larger than life. Yeah. yeah. And and he even perpetuated some of these himself. Like he told that version of the story to Carrie Elwes. But then if you go and look on like Snopes, they talked to his family and his brothers mm-hmm. were like, no, that's bullshit. Like there was yeah. no school bus. Uh, Samuel right. Beckett drove, drove us. They drove Andre. Yeah. They drove several kids. Yeah. But um, I think that's interesting that he like, yeah. he, he loved that stuff and he yeah, perpetuated it. Yeah. Yeah. So despite his humble beginnings in the countryside of France, he was a massively successful, world-famous wrestler at this point. Yeah. He was also absolutely hilarious. Uh, He learned that he was able to lift cars with his bare hands, and so sometimes he would just move his friends' cars around (laughs) without them knowing 
and so, would, so absurd. would wedge them into little alleyways and places they couldn't get them out of. Oh, my friends can't get their cars. <laughs> it was actually William Goldman who suggested that they meet with Andre about the role. It turns out Goldman was a lunatic Andre the Giant fan. Wow. And frequented his shows at Madison Square Garden. Um, and he was a he was a really incredible entertainer. Yes. This was not somebody this was somebody who was very natural mm-hmm. in front of a crowd. He's amazing. He's yeah. so funny and just incredible. Yeah. So Rob and Andy arrive in Paris and they go to meet Andre at a bar. And when they walk in, it was clear that he looks absolutely perfect. They walked yeah. in and they were like, that is Fezzik sitting yeah. on that tiny little bar stool. So they go up to their hotel room and they ask him to read three pages. And Rob Reiner says he couldn't understand a word (laughs) that Andre the Giant said. Great. Uh, So after he reads, there's this kind of silence and they're like, um... Okay, and so also we want to make it clear that the job is 15 weeks because Andre was used to traveling constantly. And this is a pretty long stay. But Andre just says, I do it, boss. Yeah, (laughs) And then he asked Rob Reiner if he wanted him to just play those three pages the whole time. And Rob was like, no, no, it's it's a big part. It's it's a movie. (laughs) It's a movie. You're in the whole thing. (laughs) But the thing is, if you're doing like wrestling performances and you're going town to town, you are repeating the same. Exactly. Beats like over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a stupid question if you think about what he's been doing. But Rob Reiner, they have no idea what to expect. (laughs) And so after they're like, no, no, you have a lot of lines. He just goes, I do it, boss, gets up and walks out. And Rob Reiner looked at Andy Scheinman and goes, oh, my God, I don't know if he can do this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But they hire him anyway. And he turns out to be the most lovely human on the planet. Um, he actually would continue to struggle with the English pronunciation of his lines during production. So before production, Rob Reiner actually put all of them on tape for him. Um, oh, so and you could he, hear them. Yeah, and he would listen to the tapes over and over. And of course, Rob Reiner is an excellent actor, so he had yeah. someone giving him like very strong line He was giving reads. his line reads, yeah, yes. exactly, before you were going to set. That's great. Now, they would later say they did not have a second choice for Wesley, Buttercup, or Fezzik. These were their only options. It sounds like it was Andre or Bust. Yeah. Now, rounding out the cast were Mandy Patinkin as Inigo Montoya. So dashing. I know. He cuts a a real dashing figure. It's, uh, he's great now, um, but it's a different Mandy Patinkin. So good. Also, it's easy to forget that Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Elwes are not Short at all because they're standing no. next to Andre the Giant for most they're, of this movie. Carrie Elwes, I knew, was over six feet. I don't know how tall. I think they're both around six feet. Like they're both dashing tall men. Carol Kane as Miracle Max's wife, Valerie. Mm-hmm. Fred Savage and Peter Falk as grandson and grandfather. And Wallace Shawn as Wallace Vizini. Shawn. So good. So according to Shawn, his agent told him he was the third choice. <laughs> Who are the first two? Can I mean, can you guess? Uh, 19? Italian, a small Italian man. Danny DeVito? Yes, that's choice okay. number one. Choice number two, uh, another small man, not Italian. Another small man. Think of a small, angry man starring opposite Bill Murray in a movie that is also from the 80s. A small, angry man starring opposite Bill Murray. Also a small, angry man starring opposite a shark. Oh, Richard Dreyfus? <laughs> yes. Interesting. Actually, <laughs> Dreyfus to me is 
a pretty good fit. Mm-hmm. More like I would have done Sean over DeVito and then maybe Dreyfus over DeVito. I love Danny DeVito and his turn on is always sunny is like the most amazing second career of all time. But, I think they're all great. I'm so yeah, glad we got Wallace Sean, but I, those are his agent told him that those were the two choices ahead of him, which I don't know why you would tell your client that, especially when your client is as neurotic as Wallace Shawn <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. So he spent the entire shoot so nervous that he wasn't as good as Danny DeVito. Yeah. That he had a pretty bad time. Um, oh. He also jokes that the performance is 40% him, 40% Rob Reiner, and 20% Danny DeVito. <laughs> That's awesome. He's just like watching tapes of Taxi as yeah. he's like enjoying it. He literally said he would think, how would Danny DeVito do this? Because he it was so stuck in his head. No, um, poor guy. In his audition, he apparently walked into the room, saw Reiner, Goldman, and Scheinman sitting there and said, oh my, and walked out. And someone had to go get him and convince him to come back in and do the wow. audition. So he's the anti-Andre the Giant. He in is story. the anti-Andre the Giant. Although he was yeah. also like an incredibly accomplished actor, playwright, and screenwriter at this point. I think he would just like teach, do lectures at Oxford in his spare time and stuff when they, and Cambridge when they were um, shooting. He's an unbelievably smart person. Well, yeah, and he had done um, my, dinner just done my dinner with Andre, yeah. and but he'd also been in Manhattan mm-hmm. and all that jazz. He's before amazing. That too, yeah, he's great. Yeah, but Rob Reiner, by the way, says he never wanted anyone else. So who knows? I'll take Reiner's word. Although that is what Rob Reiner says about everyone, because I think Rob Reiner has a hot of gold. Yeah. They also initially apparently wanted Michael Palin as the impressive clergyman, but he was about to start shooting A Fish Called Wanda, so Mm. Peter Cook stepped in instead, who is wonderful. Now, at the table read, William Goldman, again, basically scares the shit out of all of them when he tells them that this is his favorite thing he's ever written. (laughs) Yeah, don't fuck it up. (laughs) Basically, that's how he introduces himself at the table read. I wrote it for my daughters. My dad killed himself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. (laughs) And everyone just went silent. (laughs) Um, But the good news is it becomes very clear very quickly that they have the right cast in place as soon as they start. Now, I think after the script reading, they were sort of running some scenes. And Andre, who again is a performer but is brand new to acting, was repeating his lines the way Rob Reiner had recorded them for him. But he was doing it very slowly. So first he performs a scene with Carrie Elwes, who's very sweet um, and mm-hmm. just accommodating. I think sort of a lovely gentleman. And then he has a scene with Mandy Patinkin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not as sweet. <laughs> Listen, I think he's, I, this made me, lots of things in the story make me love Mandy Patinkin. Um, but I think he is not to be trifled with. So no. then he has a scene with Mandy uh, and he kept repeating his lines at the same very slow, steady, rehearsed pace. Suddenly, Mandy Patinkin reached up and slapped the giant in the space, saying, faster, Fessick. (laughs) And Andre snapped into action. (laughs) William Goldman said it was probably the first time he had ever been slapped outside the ring. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine reaching up and slapping an actual giant across the face? (laughs) I think it was a light slap. It was a light slap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it just sort of shocked him into into gear. And hey. that was kind of their, like, the dynamic um, of the characters as well. But also, like, if Mandy Patinkin slapped me, I would be kind of happy. I would love it. <laughs> I would be like, thrilled. Come on, hit the other cheek. Highlight of my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, from the very beginning, Rob Reiner knew that he did not want to use stuntmen for the big sword fight between Inigo Montoya and Wesley. 
He wanted yeah. that to be Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patinkin yeah. in the close-ups and the wide shots. And it's a there's it's not a lot of cutting. Long, nope. Yeah, and it's just this long, very well choreographed using full the yep. full set as they're going up and down. It's yeah. amazing. It's described in Goldman's book and script as the greatest sword fight in modern times. So right. nothing to live up to there. And remember also not a lot of sword fights in modern times. So that's true. Low bar. <laughs> yeah. They also have to fight with their left hands as well as their right hands. Oh, that's hands. right. That's the yeah, they have the reveal. Yep. So before they even begin production, Carrie and Mandy are sent to train with two incredible swordsmen who would help them achieve this feat, Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson. Diamond was a legendary stuntman and sword trainer who had worked with Errol Flynn. Yep. He was also the stunt coordinator on Star Wars A New Hope. And, fun fact, he is the German soldier climbing up the side of Indy's truck in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh! Yeah. Peter Diamond! <laughs> yes. He goes up the side. Uh, Bob Anderson was an Olympic fencer and expert fight choreographer. He was the lightsaber double for Darth Vader's battle scenes in The Empire Strikes Back and The Return mm. of the Jedi. And one of his last jobs before he passed away was as swordmaster on Peter Jackson. Since the Lord, Lord of the, of the Rings. Rings. I was going to say, Bob Anderson, I remembered his name. He taught Aragorn specifically. Uh, How to not hit people in the face with the sword. Kept asking Vigo why he didn't want to use the lighter stunt sword. There you go. <laughs> <And> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, Carrie Elwes shows up on day one, ready to learn. But Mandy Patinkin, not going to leave anything to chance. <laughs> So it turns you got out, private lessons beforehand. Yes, yes I love it. What much, a motherfucker! I know. That is such a move. That's I know. great. Much to oh. Carrie Elwes's dismay, Mandy Patinkin has already been training for two months yeah, in the um, U.S. Oh, yeah. before got, they get there. He has a bust of Carrie Elwes's face. He's just in, been stabbing, he's just slicing it up yeah. in his apartment. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he seems like a really fascinating person and just an unbelievably hard worker. Yes. So Mandy said when he read the script, he immediately thought of his own father's passing in 1972. He said, if I can get that six-fingered man, then I'll have my father back in my imaginary world. He'll be alive in my imagination. So that was it for me. I'll become the greatest sword fighter, and my reward will not be to be in this movie that ended up being what it's become to all these people. My reward will be that my father will come back. Oh, it's very lovely. And uh, yeah, then he beat the shit out of Carrie Elwes. And then Carrie Elwes had to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Mandy and Carrie trained from nine to five, five days a week during pre-production. Wow. And Mandy was always early. <laughs> right. <laughs> Carrie Elwes would always show up on time and be like, God damn it. This son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but their training didn't stop there. Once production started, anytime they would wrap a scene, Bob or Peter would be waiting for them with their rapiers behind the camera, and they literally trained every spare minute that they had. Yeah. I love this. This is a little side note. Christopher Guest obviously had to do a little bit of sword fighting as yeah. well. Um and he was undergoing some training, but at a certain point, he apparently just gave up and decided to simply try and defend himself from Mandy Patinkin. Yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> he was like, I'm just going to try and stop him from stabbing me. And they were yeah. like, sure, that's fine. And then he also said that when they were filming their fight in the castle, he was having so much fun. And of course, they're using blades that I guess um, aren't actually uh, metal that makes noise. Um, right. And he didn't realize that he was making the sword fight the sword sounds. sounds going ching, ching, ching. Ching, 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 so like that also happened in <laughs> Star Wars uh, in the first of the prequels. 
Ewan McGregor and Liam Neeson when they were doing their first lightsaber scenes. They were doing, they were going, <laughs> and then George Lucas was like, uh, "Hey guys, can we do it without sound effects? We'll uh, put those in later." That's literally Rob Ryder <laughs> yeah. says, "Chris, we'll put the sounds in later." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. (laughs) So shooting begins at Shepperton Studios in London, August 18th, 1986. They're set to start with the scene in The Fire Swamp, where Wesley tells Buttercup how he became the Dread Pirate Roberts, same one Carrie done in his audition. Yep. And William Goldman happened to be visiting the set. So they start filming, and they keep having to stop because there's this weird noise interrupting the dialogue. They cannot figure out what it is. It sounds like chanting. It's like it's like the omen is happening somewhere in the background of the set. And they're like, what is going on? They play the tape back on the highest volume, and it sounds yeah. like some kind of incantation. You can guess what it is. Is it William Goldman doing the dialogue with the actors? One part of that is correct. It is William Goldman. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> so, Sorry, continue. <laughs> eventually, Rob Reiner, they're like looking around the set trying to figure out what this is. He finds Bill Goldman rocking back and forth, hidden behind a toadstool with his fingers crossed in his mouth. And when Rob Reiner says, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I was just praying. Why? <laughs> Amazing. And Rob's like, Bill, you you can't do that. The mics yeah. pick everything up on set. Yeah, man. What are you doing? <laughs> so he's like, oh, okay, sorry. Sorry about that. So Goldman continued to cause a scene later when they shot the segment where Buttercup's dress catches on fire because he walked into the room and went, oh, my God, she's (laughs) on fire (laughs) and ruined the take. I love how, like, Hollywood's most accomplished screenwriter proves that no writers can ever be on set. I know. (laughs) I think he would admit that himself. Um, He was very nervous about being on set. And he was also upset that they were lighting Robin Wright on fire on the first day, lest something happened to her face. Yeah. Apparently on one take, though, the fire retardant on the dress didn't quite work right. And the dress was catching on fire too far up, um, close to her hair. But Carrie Elwes put it out just in time. Oh. So perhaps William Carrie. Goldman was screaming about that take. Maybe. So a little bit more fire swamp fun. The rodent of unusual sides was played by <laughs> stuntman Danny Blackner, a little person who had worked on Labyrinth and Return of the Jedi as an Ewok. Oh, cool. 
And he had to basically be sewn into that suit and couldn't really yeah. see anything or move. What is it? Howard the Duck? It's like, I know. Guys, we're just going to sew you in. Horrible. That's, and it's know, like so hot. I know. So on the second day that he was filming, Danny doesn't show up to set. He's very late. And they're like, what are we going to do? Are we going to have to stuff this thing and shoot it with like a dummy rat that looks absolutely horrible? So they did shoot some with that because he was not there. Interesting. And then finally he shows up and they're like, what happened? Are you okay? It turned out he'd been pulled over for speeding the night before. And when he told the cop that he needed to get back to work because he was playing a giant rat, (laughs) the cop just threw him in jail. Threw him in the drunk tank or something? (laughs) He's like, there's no way you're playing a rat. Get in jail. Except he's British. So filming locations, Humperdinck's Castle was an actual 11th century castle called Haddon Hall, which is also where Lady Jane was filmed. Oh. I think a lot of things have been filmed there. Most of the exteriors were shot in the beautiful Peak District. Rob Reiner was horrified to learn that British crews work a little differently than American ones. They had two required tea breaks each day and an additional sandwich break. Whilst on location. What about second breakfast? Yeah, exactly. He was like, <laughs> yeah. we're never going to finish <laughs> yeah. this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently their unit production manager overheard him and explained that they would strike without their tea breaks. And then they wouldn't even have a movie. So mm-hmm. they would just all stop and have a cup of tea twice a day. Yep. Now, you have probably heard that Andre the Giant could drink anyone under the table. Yes. And this is true. I would imagine. But... There is a reason for the amount of alcohol that Andre was known to drink, particularly on this shoot, and that is that he was in a lot of physical pain. Mm. Not only was he carrying around a ton of body weight, but at this point he'd also been wrestling for years, and his opponents had never held back in the ring, smashing chairs over his back, knocking him over, possibly because he was so big and seemed indestructible, people were really rough on him. And because he was traveling constantly sleep schedule was not a thing and couldn't fit in the like cars and planes that he was traveling in yeah so he was not recovering from any of these injuries as well how old was he at this point was he 40 somewhere around there he's he's not very old when he dies and he dies in the early 90s i think that's right i think he was about 40 got it so he had like incredibly intense back pain and in fact his signature leotard that he would wrestle in was actually designed to hide a back brace oh Wow. Yeah. He was due for a major back operation after the movie wrapped. There were things where, like, you know when Buttercup jumps and he catches her? She, Robin Wright, is actually on cables because he could not hold her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because she probably weighs 110 pounds in this movie. Yeah. He couldn't lift that. Yeah. Wow. Which for someone his size who's lifted cars. Right. You know, that's a big drop off. Yeah. So he was in a lot of pain. Some sources claim that he was known for downing a case of beer, three bottles of wine, and a couple bottles of brandy each day. However, Carrie Elvis recalls a different beverage. A 40-ounce beer pitcher filled with whatever mix of hard alcohol and some soft alcohol Andre felt like that day, which he called the American. (laughs) And he would just down it in, like, three gulps. I love how he makes the most disgusting thing you (laughs) could ever think of, and he goes, the American. Yep. So after the first read-through, everyone went out for a drink, but Andre shuts down the bar at the hotel that they're staying at in London. Uh, Finally, when it was closing, he got up to leave because he was not staying in that hotel, and he almost made it 
to the front of door of the hotel, but not quite. He'd pass out right in the lobby, just right in the front. And again, he weighs over 500 pounds yep. and he is seven foot four. So no one can move this man. There is a <laughs> no. literal sleeping giant yep. in the front of the hotel. <laughs> and so the hotel workers just decide to put some velvet like ropes rope, around yeah, him. Yeah, rope him off. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they're like, That's all you can do. They're like, let him sleep it off. It'll be fine. He'll, he'll get up in a few minutes. He did not. Um, he was there until 10 a.m. the next morning. <laughs> wow. So there That were, would have been an incredible sight to yeah. check into the hotel yep. and just there's Andre the Giant behind velvet rope. That's literally, people were walking in just terrified and walking around him because he was like in front of the entrance to the hotel. Yeah. And then he just got up, dusted himself up, walked out the door. All good, boss. So everyone on set absolutely loved him. He sounds like one of the sweetest people on the planet. Uh, Here's some incredible stuff that he did while on set. When Robin Wright was freezing, when they were filming outside, he would just rest his hand on her head to keep her warm. She said it was like a hot water bottle. A hot plate on top of her head. When the first catering company kept providing not-so-great food, the same kind of dish over and over again, Andre took a truck back to France and returned with cases of fine wine, foie gras, cheese, everything they could have wanted. Wow. He actually owned a restaurant, I believe, and was a very fine food and wine connoisseur. Interesting. Also, apparently our nervous... Little friend Wallace Shawn was petrified of heights, and they had to be on a 35-foot forklift for the scene where they're climbing the Cliffs of Insanity. Right. Which that was, their close-ups are shot um, inside Shepperton Studios, but then those are stunt doubles on actual Mm -hmm. cliffs in Ireland, and they're just being, like, pulled up by a pulley system. Yeah. But Shawn did not want to get on the forklift at all. Apparently, Andre just held him and said, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And he also offered him some cognac from the flask, which Sean declined. But he was able to calm down enough to do the scene. Oh, sweet giant man. So sweet. So this is one of my favorite stories from the whole thing. While filming the scene on the castle wall with Fezig, Inigo, and Wesley, right as Fezig says, I guess not very long, (laughs) Andre ripped the longest and loudest fart that anyone on that set had ever heard. (laughs) The way that Carrie Elwes describes it, it sounds like the scene in the movie where they hear the man in black screaming (laughs) through all the towns. Like, everyone stops what they're doing. The sound guy, like, has to take his headphones off and cover his ears. It just goes on and on. It was also a very hot day, and Andre was wearing a hairpiece to make him look a little younger, which was apparently producing steam off of his head. <laughs> so he's like steaming. And so just... he just lets out the swamps of Dagobah. Everyone obviously erupts in laughter, and they could not get through this take for a yeah. long time after that, because anytime he would say that line, they would just all start laughing. Yeah. Finally, Rob Reiner pulls Carrie Elwes aside, and Carrie is like, I am so sorry. I cannot get my shit together. <laughs> like, yeah. this is too funny. And Rob Reiner said, it's all right, Carrie. Just flip it. Try to change the way you think of Andre. Think about what it's like for him being a giant and getting laughed at just because he's different. Aww. Also, leave it to Rob Reiner to be the only one that is, like, able to truly understand the situation. Yeah. So Carrie obviously stopped laughing. He goes back, nails the take, and then apologized to Andre, who said, It's okay. My farts always make people laugh. That was a big one, wasn't it? And then Mandy Patinkin spent the next two months training himself to fart even longer. (laughs) 
Well, speaking of Mandy Patinkin, uh, the only injury he suffered on set was actually from bruising a rib while trying so hard not to laugh at Billy Crystal at living yeah. his miracle mask. I, I bet, because he's like, I'm not going to let this motherfucker make me yeah, laugh. he physically you know I mean? hurt himself. Yeah, that's amazing. Carrie Elwes was not so lucky. His first injury was entirely his own fault. They had gotten an ATV big enough for Andre to ride around to the on-location shoots because he can't fit in a transport van. And he couldn't walk up the hills because of his back. And he loved this thing. He had one like it on his farm. He's just zooming around, having a great time, no problem. So he keeps trying to get Carrie Elwes to drive it. (laughs) Carrie's been saying no for a while. And then finally he's like, no, boss, it's easy. You'll like it. So Carrie Elwes tries it out and promptly manages to crash it into a pile of rocks. And he somehow got his big toe wedged between a rock and the clutch pedal. And when he looked at it, his toe was bent completely downward. Oh. It's extremely broken. Oh. Now, Carrie's very young, and he, like Wallace Shawn, was concerned that he could lose this job. They're not so far into production that they couldn't replace him. So he tries to hide it from Rob Reiner. The medic is like, you cannot, like, you can't. And he's like, just, can you just like splint it and just like cut a hole in the back of my shoe and just shove my foot in it? And so he's trying to get all these people to help him. And he's like limping his way back up, trying to pull it off. Uh, But he gets up there and Rob Reiner's like, so uh, what were you going to tell me? And he's like, about, about what? And he's like, your toe, Carrie. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have a working toe. Your toe. (laughs) You're supposed to be running around. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But Rob Reiner was very sweet about it. He was basically just like, The only thing that upset me was that you would lie to me about it. That's even worse. That is worse. He's not mad. He's disappointed. Yeah, I think Rob Reiner's a psychopath. No, I love him. (laughs) Um, And you can actually see in a few scenes right before the fire swamp, he's holding his leg a little weirdly. If you Mm. watch the way that he sits down, he does it without putting any pressure. He holds that leg straight out. It's because he literally can't put weight on that foot. The other injury that he got, you actually can see in the final cut of the film. Hmm. Can you guess what it is? No, I can't. So when Christopher Guest knocks him out after they're captured exiting the fire swamp, he actually knocks him out. That is real. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when his eyes roll back into his head and he falls, like it looks like the craziest pratfall. That's what I say. It looks so exaggerated. I never would have guessed it. Wow. Yeah. I have to reevaluate all the movies that I thought were being very fakey when they did something like that, if that's apparently what it looks like. That is real. So apparently they'd been practicing and certifiable nice man Christopher Guest was too scared to really go for it. Right. So they kept shooting it and it looked fake. Yeah. And finally, Carrie Elwes was like, no, I think you should just just do it, but just do like a light tap. Like you go for it. And they go for it. And boom, Carrie Elwes wakes up in an emergency room, (laughs) still dressed like Zorro, being stitched up by the same doctor who had splinted his toe. Yeah. Just like, (laughs) do you need me to call someone for you? I think this guy made a lot of fun of him because he was dressed so funny both times. And he's British. Um, Not the nicest doctors in the world from what I remember from being in London, but that was limited experience. So who knows? Wow. Shots fired. Sorry. So back to the greatest sword fight in modern times. Carrie Elwes's toe is mostly healed, although, by the way, not 100% by the time they're doing this. The day finally comes for Carrie and Mandy to show the cast and crew their sword fight on the set built 
just for them. They do it beautifully, and everyone claps, except Rob Reiner, who says, that's it? (laughs) It turns out they had gotten so good at it that they had just reduced it down to a minute and 23 seconds. Oh, wow. And Rob Reiner is like, "Uh, this is supposed to be the the greatest sword fight. Right. This can't be a minute long. And he's like, go back, add at least two more minutes to this fight. Wow. Yes. So Carrie, Mandy, Bob, and Peter go back. They not only add the acrobatics, which you see, that is the only stunt double. That's a gymnast named Jeff Davis. Okay. They also have to have the set builders build additional set pieces so that they can move. They build up that sort of tower. So that's where they go. They go up the stairs and stuff like that. Got it. I was wondering about that. And fun things like when Inigo loses his sword and then it, you know, he catches it. And by the way, that's, I think Bob Anderson was waiting up above, caught it and then dropped it. Dropped it. Yeah, that makes sense. So finally, it's time to shoot the sequence for real. Even Bill Goldman flies back to see it. Praying the entire time. my God. Doing incantations in the corner. Yeah. They absolutely nail it over and over again. Left-handed and right-handed. Also, when Inigo asks who Wesley is and Wesley says, get used to disappointment, Inigo's, okay, was improvised by Mandy. One of my favorite moments in the whole (laughs) movie. It's a good moment, yeah. And in case you're wondering how it holds up, I did watch several very fun YouTube compilations of a master swordsman raiding different sword fights on film. And even he says this is the best fight scene. Rates the fencing itself pretty high, but also the dialogue and acting is so good because they had practiced so much. Also pretty well rated, Russell Crowe and Gladiator. Yeah, Gladiator, not super historically accurate according to the historian one, but sword fights, quite good. Pretty good. Apparently terrible, the Scorpion King. Yes, although apparently... (laughs) Not as terrible as you'd think, The Witcher on Netflix. That's right. He didn't hate that one. No, I like Henry Cavill. So Peter Falk and Fred Savage didn't really interact with anyone else from the cast because their scenes were shot on a different set after everybody had wrapped. Yeah. Falk is only 55 at the time, by the way. I was wondering, because I'm I'm guessing they did a little bit to maybe make him look a hair older. They had done more initially because he was worried that he wasn't old enough and they had like prosthetics on him. But 55 with like a 12-year-old grandson actually is not no, unusual. It's not. But they watched the dailies back when he mm-hmm. initially had the prosthetics on and he came to Rob Reiner and he was like, I look like a burn victim. So they yeah. took it off and they reshot those scenes Got it. with yeah. very minimal old age makeup. Yeah. There was also an alternate ending originally shot where Fred Savage would be reading the book in his room, hear something out his window and open it to see Fezzik, Wesley, Buttercup, and Inigo on horses, but they ended up cutting this because they thought it was too confusing. Yeah, it's also just the as you wish. It's very sweet. Gets the point across. And we're out. Also, apparently for this scene, they had to literally crane Andre onto the horse so he wasn't putting any weight on it because they said no. the horse saw Andre and it was like, nope, fuck you. I'm, yeah. Not, yeah. I'm not doing yeah. that. Yeah, no. Uh, and then Rob Ryder said that he walked onto set and Andre the giant was just being carefully lowered from the ceiling onto a very scared horse and he just goes, hello, boss. <laughs> uh. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. (laughs) Mark Knopfler, lead singer and guitarist for Dire Straits, Straits. Mm -hmm. provided the score for the film. Um, He had scored Local Hero a few years earlier, which if you've never seen that, I really like that movie. Yeah. I like Dire Straits a lot. I do too. <laughs> Tunnel of Love, very underrated song, great guitar solo. Anyway. He had one condition to do this movie. As many musicians were, he was a huge Spinal Tap fan. Ah. And he said he would score this movie if Rob Reiner could find a way to get Marty DeBerge's USS Coral Sea baseball cap somewhere on screen. And he did it. It is on the shelf in Fred Savage's bedroom. Very cool. So... 20th Century Fox was initially very, very stoked on The Princess Bride. But Post is taking quite a lot longer than expected because they're having a bit of a hard time striking the balance between the comedy and the Mm -hmm. action and the heart of the movie. As we said at the beginning, one of the hardest things about this is that the tone is a bit hard to pin down. So they push it back from its original July 31st, 1987 release date. On September 15th, The Hollywood Reporter runs an article saying that the movie was going to be a challenge for the marketing department. And the studio decides to push it again. It premieres at TIFF on 918, and it's set to do a limited release in theaters the next week, which it does. But as the cast and crew are flying back from Toronto, Rob Reiner shows them the poster. Okay, so, Chris, I want to show you the poster that... The marketing team was about to start using to promote the movie. Okay, let's do it. This first one is about an old man reading to a boy in a cloud kingdom. And that's all I know about this movie. That's right. It's pretty weird. Uh, It looks kind of like a bizarro Disney movie. There's no Wesley. There's no Buttercup. There's no Giant. There's no Inigo Montoya. It doesn't look like this movie. Nope. But it wasn't just... The U.S. market that was having a hard time, it was also the foreign market. So I want to show you the Japanese poster. Take a look. This looks like whoever they hired in Japan forgot about it until (laughs) the day before he had to turn it in. And so he cut out pictures from the movie and he glued them to a poster board. It is just a bunch of images from the movie, literally like clip arted together. Yeah. It's really confusing. It's weird. It doesn't look amazing. And again, I have no idea what this movie is. Now, the last one I want to show you is my favorite. This is the Italian poster for La Storia Fantastica. (laughs) Okay. Well, this one is the best one of all of them. So this is based on the style of the artist Frank Frazetta, who did the art for Conan the Barbarian and many fantasy novels in the 60s and 70s. And basically what you have here is a super steroided up Inigo Montoya holding a sword, giant lizard rat dragons, sexy Italian Robin Wright. Mm-hmm. I really want to see this movie. Yeah, like, but this it's looks not, great. It's not the movie. 
It's no, not no, the no. Princess Bride. I would go see this movie and be confused <laughs> yes. that it, I saw the Princess Bride. That it's not a roided out Inigo Montoya exactly. with some sort of Excalibur sword. Yes. Actually, this looks like the version John Borman would have directed. That is exactly what this looks like. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, none of them get it. Yeah. Also, apparently the trailer was so confusing that it was pulled almost immediately. Yeah. But the problem is audiences that did see it loved it. Right. It won the People's Choice at Toronto and had a crazy high audience rating. Something like yeah. 94% would recommend it. But it didn't matter because they couldn't mm. get people to see it. With a budget around 15 to 16 million, The Princess Bride only brought in about $30 million in its theatrical run, meaning it likely wow. did not turn a profit after marketing and distribution. It wouldn't have. Not during its theatrical run. Nope. But it wasn't until Christmas the following year that the film suddenly got a second chance. Mm. And that is through VHS. Yep. VHS sales went through the roof because everyone started giving the gift of The Princess Bride, which is perhaps yep. how we all grew up with a VHS of The Princess Bride in our house. I was going to say, yeah. Also, it was through people watching it at home with their families. Um, that, Makes sense. Yeah, that this became an enduring classic beloved by millions. Everyone in the cast and crew remembers it fondly. When Andre the Giant sadly passed away in 1993 from congestive heart failure, his family no. apparently told Carrie Elwes it had been one of the highlights of his life. Everyone in the cast is constantly being quoted by their fans. Fun fact, if you want to really impress Billy Crystal, don't say, have fun storming the castle. Instead, say, don't go swimming for an hour. Yeah, a good hour. <laughs> he likes that one. My favorite story, though, is that Rob Reiner went out to dinner with Nora Ephron and her husband, Nick Pileggi, who wrote Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. And they took him to a restaurant in New York City that John Gotti loved. And John Gotti was there that night. And when Rob Reiner was walking out of the restaurant, Gotti's limo was out front with a giant man who looked like Luca Brazzi from The Godfather standing mm -hmm. by it. And the guy stops Rob Reiner and goes, hey, you kill my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> Rob Reiner was, like, peeing his pants. Yeah. Like, please no. <laughs> I'm just terrified. Great. And I will leave you with a quote from William Goldman. This movie was a remarkable experience. The best experience I've ever had. It just worked. You never know why, and as you wish it would work like that all the time, but it doesn't. You never know what's going to happen with a movie when it comes out. Even if you've got a great cast and it's wonderfully directed, you just never know. All I know is it's different. It's an odd piece. That's The Princess Bride. What a fun one. What an upbeat one. A charming one. Yeah. I feel like the behind the scenes really matched the tone of the movie. It did. And we don't get a ton of those. So thank you, Lizzie. Sure. That was a very heartwarming journey. Indeed. Stuff went wrong, but not too wrong. <laughs> and our next film, Galaxy Quest, will have some similar themes of how the studio didn't know how the hell to market it. That makes sense. I am excited to talk about that one as well. I'm excited to watch that one. It's so good. Okay. I can't wait. It is. I forgot how good it is. I can't wait. Chris, what went right? So many things went right in the making of this movie. I would have to say, for me, Mandy Patinkin. So good. He's great. And I love that he was... Kind of a psycho about doing the role so well because it translates in his performance in yeah. such a good way. You know, he's so fun. And I think his energy opposite, he and Carrie Elwes are a great example of 
how contrast on screen can be so effective. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the whole movie is because all the cast, you know, they have a they have very different looks in a very fun way. Anyway, I'm gonna pick Manny Patinkin for mine. Uh, I forgot how much I enjoyed him in this movie. So good, so sweet. I, I feel like everyone in this comes across as very pure. Yeah, and I think that my what went right because of that is Rob Reiner. Everybody talking about the way that he would direct, he just seems like a very generous director and someone who understands actors and obviously understands comedy very well. Um, But there was a story actually with him and Mandy Patinkin and Mandy was, you know, kind of freaking out about the part. And he was like, you know, Mandy, you don't have to do anything. Like you are Inigo Montoya. I cast you. I want you. Like you're doing it. Just get out of your own way. And I think that what he provided everyone was sort of the safety to just be themselves and it comes through on screen and I I love it. I really love this movie. I do too. Lizzie, thank you so much. Guys, if you haven't yet, give The Princess Bride a rewatch. It is so good. So fun. As always, if you enjoy our podcast, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't enjoy our podcast, that's fine. Don't leave us a rating and review Please don't. on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to hear more content, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash whatwentwrongpodcast. You can, for free, vote for the next movie that we will cover. And if you'd like to toss us a few shekels, you can also get bonus episodes featuring uh, more than, I guess, a few. I don't know what the shekel uh, ratio is right now, exchange rate. Check out our Patreon. We just had a really great interview with Wendy O'Brien, casting director from Abbott Elementary and many, many more shows and movies. Lizzie, we got to give a shout out to our full stop patrons. Yes, we do. Chris Leal, Matthew Pelton, Tom Kristen. Tom Kristen. So So much much money. Michael McGrath. Michael McGrath. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your patronage. Your generosity is astounding. Yes. We might even suggest an MRI. And with that, until next time. Goodbye. As As you you wish. wish. Okay, boss. (laughs) Go to patreon.com slash whatwentwrongpodcast to support what went wrong and gain access to bonus episodes, video content, and more. What Went Wrong is a sad boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Euthana Uos.